Neuropathways, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals exploring the latest research discoveries and clinical advances in the fields of neurology, psychiatry, neurosurgery, and neurorehab. In the U.S., approximately 6 million critically ill patients are admitted to the ICU every year. About 5 million of them now survive. In today's episode of Neuropathways, we're discussing recognition and management of post-ICU syndrome in patients and families. I'm your host, Alex Ray Grant, neurologist in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute. In an effort to explore this emerging phenomenon, I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Joao Gomez. Dr. Gomez is a vascular neurologist, neurocritical care specialist, and head of the Neurointensive Care Unit at Cleveland Clinic's Cerebrovascular Center and Neurological Institute. Joao, welcome to Neuropathways. Thank you, and thank you for the invitation. Let's start with an easy question. Uh, where are you from, and how did your career lead you to the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland? Yeah, well, I have to go back a few years, but originally from uh, Caracas, uh, Venezuela, where I completed my medical training. I came to the U.S. back in 98 to do further training in neurology, and as you mentioned, in uh, neurointensive care. And as I was looking to start my career in academic medicine, an opportunity uh, came up here at the clinic. And um, obviously, given the prestige and the resources and uh, the patient population, uh, so it was a very obvious choice for me to come and uh, enjoy the beautiful Cleveland weather. <laughs> Glad to have you here enjoying it with us. Uh, today's conversation involves a critical topic that really affects millions of people in the ICU each year. Can you go back and describe for our listeners what exactly post-ICU syndrome is and how it presents and how it can affect the patient's recovery? Yeah, certainly. So one has to go back primarily to literature from medical and surgical um, ICU populations. And what uh, some of our colleagues in, in those uh, units started noticing was that Patients who uh, survive, let's say, an episode of uh, sepsis or uh, severe ARDS or respiratory failure would go back to, to their outpatient clinic, and they had a lot of complaints that were not related to the primary reason for admission. That's to say they had a lot of anxiety and po post-traumatic stress disorder, cognitive problems, even physical disability that was not explained by the, the reason for their admission. And so that conglomerate of symptoms and signs is what has been labeled this post-ICU syndrome. Uh, now we recognize sort of manifestations in three big areas. One, as I mentioned, is the, the, the physical aspect of this. Uh, uh, many of these patients have uh, difficulty walking, difficulty with, um, with balance. Um, their stamina is uh, certainly decreased after a major uh, critical care um, episode. Second uh, large area is uh, psychiatric. So the incidence of uh, depression, PTSD, and anxiety is quite high, as high as 30% uh, of patients admitted to a general medical or surgical ICU experience uh, symptoms that would meet criteria, diagnostic criteria for one of these major psychiatric disorders. And the third component uh, is uh, in the cognitive arena. Uh, and just to give you an idea, again, patients who were admitted with primarily severe sepsis or septic shock and, uh, and or ARDS, over 20% of them had some degree of cognitive dysfunction, as measured by different scales. But what's interesting is that most of them scoring at the same level as patients who had suffered traumatic brain injury. And about 5 to 10% of them actually scoring the level of where an Alzheimer's disease patient would score. 
And again, these were patients whose uh, reason for admission was not neurologic at all. So we don't know the mechanisms, uh, but there is certainly something going on, whether it is a sleep deprivation, just a systemic inflammatory response, some of the medications that we use or a combination of all of these, perhaps hypoxia in some of these cases, that definitely leads to cognitive decline and all the other symptoms that I, I just mentioned. Interesting. So, you know, it's safe to say that many neuro-ICU patients have already suffered from a brain-related injury. But would you say those patients are more susceptible to these kind of post-ICU uh, syndromes than med-surge ICU patients? Right, right. Uh, the, the short answer is we don't know. And we don't know because there really hasn't been any serious research in our population trying to um, look at risk factors, incidents, et cetera. And I can tell you a little bit about, about our own experience and what we're doing here. Because uh, many of the symptoms that I mentioned are the kind of symptoms that you would expect to find in someone with a significant devastating brain injury. Uh, one of the early questions that we were faced with is how can we tease apart what's due to the brain injury and what's due to the post-ICU syndrome? Um, and after various meetings with uh, statisticians here at uh, Quantitative Health Sciences, um, it became evident that we had to control for that. So, so far we went back, we have about 3,000 patients that we have identified were admitted to our ICU with some sort of cerebrovascular diagnosis, be it ischemic stroke, intracerebral hemorrhage, subarachnoid hemorrhage, et cetera. And we have the disease severity score from a neurologic standpoint. That's their NIH stroke scale or the ICH score or the Hunt and Hess grade, for example. Uh, but we, we also have the Apache score, and Apache measures the disease severity from a more systemic or critical illness standpoint. And we're fortunate enough that in 2015, here at the clinic, we started uh, measuring elements of what you know as the knowledge uh, program, which basically is outcome data and outcomes in uh, sort of rehab and physical uh, dimension, but also uh, in terms of uh, cognition and self-reported outcomes in general. So it's not ideal, but we do have some degree of outcomes there. And what we're hoping to do is to uh, take those patients that were admitted to our ICU with this diagnosis and take a control group of patients with similar NIH stroke scale and ICH and Hunt and Hess scores, but who were not admitted to the ICU or spent uh, a very short period of time in the unit and try to isolate what the effect of being admitted to an ICU with a brain injury um, really adds to the to the symptoms that we find or this post-ICU syndrome. So right now we don't know the difference. We don't know if they're more susceptible or not. We know about some risk factors, for example, delirium in the general medical population increases the risk of post-ICU syndrome, but we don't know if that's true for our patient population. So we are hoping to find more as uh, our study progresses. While your group is working on understanding the phenomenon better, which sounds like a great a great thing to be doing, are there treatments we're trying now related to the idea of a post-ICU syndrome uh, in our population? Yeah, so one of the uh, things that we realized is that we don't have a good place for these patients to, to follow up. Uh, many of them end up in a LTAC, and as you know, it's very challenging to, for them to be transported here for an outpatient appointment. And to be honest with you, the reason why I went into critical care, even though I'm a neurologist, is I didn't want to see an outpatient again <laughs> in my life. <laughs> but then I realized that what pro probably is not the right approach, and, and, and um, I'm not alone there. Most intensivists don't have follow-up clinics. So one of the initiatives that we have started is a post-ICU clinic. Uh, because, as I mentioned, many of these patients end up going to uh, rehab, 
or an L tag, it's very challenging for them to come here. And because at, at the CV Center, we have a long-standing tradition of using distance health and telemedicine for a lot of the encounters that we do, it's basically going to be a telemedicine clinic. So we're partnering with some of the LTACs in the region, and we're going to offer this service over telemedicine. And uh, we're going to do a screening for depression. We're going to do a screening for anxiety, PTSD, cognitive decline, and et cetera. Uh, we're going to get a baseline while they're in the ICU before they get discharged, and we're going to do a 30-day follow-up, and then we're hoping to be able to continue this and do a 6-month and 12-month so we can get longitudinal data, but also so that we can start interventions early on. For example, medication reconciliation, something as simple as that. We oftentimes see patients taking more medications than they should. Uh, but also starting antidepressants or anti-anxiety medications early on and not waiting for them to be able to come out to clinic three or six months later on. Perhaps they need more physical therapy or they need Botox, so making the right referrals to a specialist. And, and even um, managing antiplatelets, anticoagulation and some of the other things, other aspects of their medical care that sometimes can fall through the cracks. So we're hoping uh, that this will help provide better care for, for these patients, not only from a medical standpoint, but also from this uh, post-ICU syndrome standpoint. You know, it's interesting in this day and age, we now recognize that the patient's one part of the axis of care, and, and certainly families and caregivers can be devastated by some of the critical illnesses that, that your group sees. So we now know that uh, families may express anxiety and depression and even a post-traumatic stress type of syndrome as a result of seeing their loved ones in a critical condition, and they may need help with that. So is your team doing anything to support uh, that group uh, through uh, this process, what might be called post-ICU syndrome and family? About two years ago, when one of our newest staff joined the group, he had an interest in looking at um, family experience in our unit. So we conducted a survey um, asking families, um, using a validated tool about the, their experience in the ICU, to try to learn a little bit more what their experience was and whether there were any things that we could optimize. And a number of changes were made after that uh, survey. The results were available. Uh, something as simple as the... Uh, the family room, the waiting room area. There were a few things that I pointed out that hadn't occurred to us, but it made a huge impact for them. Um, so as a result of that, we have convinced the administration to modify uh, their waiting room and add a few amenities that uh, we think is going to make their experience uh, a little bit better. Um, so we're, we are working on that. Uh, the other big area was one of communication. As you can imagine, you have a loved one in an ICU, quite sick. There are multiple teams of doctors uh, working, and you don't necessarily know the minute-to-minute -minute, uh, information, updates of what's going on. So we incorporated uh, uh, family rounds. So when we do our rounds in the morning, usually between the hours of 9 and 12, we tell the family and we encourage them to be physically present there and be part of the discussion that takes place uh, between the nurse and the nurse practitioner and residents and fellows and the staff so that they can witness the process, they can hear everything that's going on. Uh, oftentimes, obviously, the level might be a little high because we're using medical terminology, but we make sure that for every organ system that we address, we give the patient family a summary of what's going on and what the plan is and, and what we hope to achieve for the day. So I think that interaction is very helpful. They, they uh, seem to, to feel better because at least they know 
what's going on. Uh, and I think that has improved uh, the, the, the family satisfaction overall, at least in the area of communication with the team. Joao, we talked a little bit before we got started, and one thing you mentioned to me was the idea of ICU diaries. Uh, I hadn't heard of that before. Can you tell the audience a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. It's a relatively new uh, tool that has been developed, and um, the idea is to have a, a, a formal um, diary notebook where the, the team that cares for the patient can write brief daily updates of relevant uh, uh, things that happen with and to the patient. Obviously, there are a lot of concerns about HIPAA information, protected health information, et cetera. But it's really more so that when the patient um, eventually wakes up and is uh, trying to make sense of what happened and may have significant gaps in their memory, they can go back and refer to this journal and look at the progression of their illness uh, day by day. And similarly, uh, families are encouraged to, to leave uh, notes in there, to to leave comments. Uh, in some places, in, particularly in Europe, even pictures are posted there. As, as you understand, the regulatory environment in the US might make that a little bit more challenging. Uh, but we, we hear from patients over and over that they have this big gap in their memory. They're very confused about what happens, particularly if they were delirious. They don't know. They, they have difficulty separating reality from, from some hallucinations they might, may have had during uh, that episode. And having that journal actually has been shown in, in research to decrease some of that anxiety and to help with, with recovery and helps them make sense uh, of the experience. Uh, we're hoping to be able to secure funding to be able to provide that uh, tool to our patients. Unfortunately, we currently are not um, able to do so, but uh, we're looking forward to, to doing that in the future. So before we sign off, are, are there any additional takeaways or, or information that you have of providers like myself who, you know, we might end up caring for these patients in the outpatient setting after their discharge and recovery from the ICU? Anything else that we should be, you know, thinking about or be aware of? Yeah, I think just uh, thinking about the possibility that if a patient had any um, intensive care unit stay of any significant period of time, and by significant period of time, usually the literature quotes 48 hours or longer, that perhaps some of the manifestations, some of the symptoms that you might be encountering could be related to that, to have a high index of suspicion. And hopefully, as we have our, our clinic up and running, uh, we certainly would be helpful to, to assess and see these patients in referral. Well, I might be sending you patients. <laughs> we'll see. Well, Joao, thank you so much for joining us, and we really look forward to seeing the progress your group makes and in helping how we care for patients and families in the ICU. Thank you. Thank you very much. This concludes this episode of Neuropathways. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash neuropodcast, or subscribe to the podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from experts in Cleveland Clinic's Neurological Institute on our Consult QD website. That's consultqd.clevelandclinic.org neuro, or follow us on Twitter at MD. all one word, that's at CLEClinicMD on Twitter. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon. 